0: Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health and we're delighted to have Tyler LeBaron back with us again on his journey of continuing to learn more and more about the amazing benefits of molecular hydrogen. And that's a big difference. This is not hydrogen. And I know I was confused about simple hydrogen because that's an hydrogen ion. It's like a pH, it's an acid, but this is different. Those, that's a hydrogen ion. We're talking about molecular hydrogen, which is two hydrogen atoms bound together and uh, most common molecule and smallest molecule in the universe, and it has enormous biological benefits. And it is without a doubt, my absolute unmitigated favorite for an antioxidant because it's selective. It doesn't non-discriminately suppress free radicals, which can be highly beneficial. You just want to, you want to hit it with a sledgehammer. You want to hit it with a rifle. And you're, you know, it's using your body's own intrinsic biological systems and feedback to understand when you're under this profound oxidative stress. And then it can just activate these pathways, which I'm sure we're going to go into NRF2 and keep proteins and causes your DNA to make the antioxidants themselves. Cause it's not directly an antioxidant. A lot of people are confused. They think, oh, like I was, and Tyler got me straight, set me straight. It's like you're thinking, all oh, the molecular hydrogen is going to bind with the hydroxyl free radical and neutralize it. Well, it happens maybe, but that's the, such a minute component. It's just, it makes, helps you make anti your own antioxidants, dozens of them, maybe hundreds. So with all that preface, because you're going to do most of the talking, uh, so I'm so glad you're with us. Thank you for joining us.
1: Well, thank you. My my pleasure. I, I love talking about hydrogen. So it's it's a great opportunity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So why don't you first update us on your journeys? Because I know you're in the process of getting your PhD in molecular hydrogen, uh, and how's that going? Are you getting close?
1: Yeah, no. So I have finished. I finished last year, um, okay. and 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 very excited that I was able to be in the laboratory and do a lot of the research. I've been, you know, studying this and looking at it since 2009, and. Yeah. You know that that's when I started my degree in biochemistry, and then I did an ex a, a master's degree in exercise and sports conditioning, and and did a thesis on using molecular hydrogen, and then I transitioned to doing a a PhD as well, and we did molecular hydrogen research. So,
0: yeah. So you, did you did you do your thesis, and you got your PhD now?
1: Yeah. Yep. I'm a, it's, it's All right.
0: Well, congratulations. Yeah. I didn't realize that.
1: Okay. Yeah. That's thank fantastic.
0: you. Fantastic, Doctor Tyler LeBaron.
1: <laughs> Well, (laughs)
0: yeah, that's great. That's really great. So, um, well, I guess that's, that's a big update. And why don't you, um, well, give us an update on things and I'll just, you know, figure out what, uh,
1: what, what, where we're going. uh, Well, I wanted to mention, because this is, this has come up recently again, you said something very important about Molecular hydrogen. That's not just the, the normal hydrogen people think about with the the hydrogen ion, which is about pH and acid. But mm-hmm. there's another misunderstanding where people um, are are thinking that in order for something to act as an antioxidant, it has to be negatively charged, and then that's going to neutralize a positive free radical or something. Mm-hmm. And and I and that's not really what's going on. And in, in fact, hydrogen, as you said, yeah, it is a neutral molecule, and it's not donating its electron, per se, mm-hmm. to neutralize the free radicals. It, it could scavenge radicals like the hydroxyl radical, which then produces water, so that's mm-hmm. a nice stoichiometry, but really, it's regulating our body's own production of antioxidants, and that's what gives it a unique antioxidant effect. And there's some different things I've seen out there talking about hydrogen that uh, we should really be looking at H minus or hydride because it has this extra electron. Well, unfortunately, that's, that's not even possible. A, a hydride <laughs> is is extremely reactive and, you know, to put it in perspective in order to have a hydride H minus in water, you'd have to have a pH of about 33 or so, because that that's based on the PKA, Jeez. so to speak. I mean, it's just, it's not going to work, mm-hmm. you know, and then, Anyway, so you don't, we, we just want to, we're focusing about molecular hydrogen. All the studies that are out there, there's over 2000 studies now on, on hydrogen gas, molecular hydrogen. It's all on molecular hydrogen, not on H minus or H or, or H plus or, or all of these things. So it is on H2.
0: Well, good. And as we mentioned, I mentioned earlier, it, the, the primary method, at least as I understand, and certainly correct me if I'm wrong, is it, that it activates the NRF2 pathway. And what are there any specific antioxidants that endogenous antioxidants your body's producing as a result of exposure to this activation of the pathway that are more profoundly or more generously produced by your body than others, like a secluded thion on this yeah. primal one, or you know what is the superoxide dismutase, which catalyzes? catalyze you know which, so, which so this, this is, how many of them are there? How many of them are identified at this point?
1: Well, actually, if you look at the NRF2, so it's a KEEP1-NRF2 pathway, maybe just to walk through this a little bit for, for yeah. the audience. Um, in your cell, you have this protein, NRF2, and it's attached to KEEP1, and, and they're all always attached together. But when you get some oxidative stress or some other um, stimulator molecule, basically it, it can cleave off, it causes the, the cleaving off of the NRF2 and the KEEP1, and the NRF2 can then diffuse into the nucleus and it binds to the ARE, or the antioxidant response element of the DNA. And then mm-hmm. it is, you know, the, the production, basically, of all these endogenous antioxidants. It is the phase, two, we call them the phase two enzymes of the detoxification and antioxidation. There's over 200 of these 200 different injective of, wow. yes, yeah, wow. it's over 200 of them. So, so yeah, we typically talk about glutathione as a peptide, a superoxide just mutase, catalase, glutathione peroxidase. But those are just the main, you know, ones we talk about. But there's a whole bunch of other ones, including heme-1 oxygenase um, that are activated or can be activated by by, um, activation of the NRF2 pathway.
0: So are there, I mean, that's clearly, it seems to be one of its primary benefits. And its it's therapeutic uses are almost mind-boggling, the number of diseases uh, or indications or conditions actually not diseases can't say that conditions that it seems to benefit or help or support. So maybe you can highlight some of the most important ones.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So, so two things when it comes to the different conditions, you're right. Um, Molecular hydrogen has been shown to be therapeutic in using essentially over 170, probably closer to 200 different animal (laughs) disease models. And, and what this means is, so for example, diabetes, Uh, there's lots of ways to induce diabetes in an animal model right maybe 10 different ways let's say well each one has a different there's different factors different things about it and but using these different models we can show hygiene has therapeutic effects so it, it is very powerful in all these ways and like you said yes the nrf2 in some cases seem to be um, extremely important. In fact, by using uh, gene knockout studies or microRNA, like or interfering RNA, um, you can uh, basically blunt the benefits of molecular hydrogen in 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 some specific studies. So the NRF2 is is very important uh, to be involved. However. I think we should talk about maybe some advantages of H two compared to other NRF two activators like sulforaphane. Right. Or
0: well, I was just I was just going to say that, like from broccoli. I mean, you know, if you can compare the two, because that's the tip. And most there's many other right. phytonutrients that that activate the NRF two. Broccoli sulforaphane being one of them, of course.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and it's not t- pe- people typically want to say, you know, if you have a graph and then uh, you know, this NR2 activator is, you know, this much, and this one is this much, and this one is this this much, and whichever one is the highest is going to be the absolute best. That, that's not really the right way to look at it. We what we want is optimal levels. And not mm-hmm. only optimal levels in the body, but we want optimal levels in the specific cell. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so when we take something that's powerful, like sulforaphane or, or, or other molecules, some of which are toxic, but many toxic molecules act, also activate the NRF2 pathway. Um, well, in, in fact, that is the part of the, <laughs> m- most of these molecules, you know, that, that do activate the NRF2 pathway are slightly toxic. I mean, that's the whole purpose of them, right? Is, is well,
0: tobacco their... smoke would be an example, wouldn't it?
1: The, the Which one? Tobacco, oh, tobacco smoke. smoke. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah, you can see upregulations of this as well. Um, And so most things that are, you know, we cite phytochemicals, these phytonutrients, they're slightly toxic for the body, but they end up inducing these favorable effects. Just like when we exercise, all this extra breathing, all this oxygen, we're producing more free radicals, but then in turn, this is going to increase our body's uh, antioxidant status, for example, or increase mitochondrial biogenesis. So when it comes to hydrogen molecular hydrogen and comparing this to other nrf2 activators what wh- we need to think about is some cells are already uh, redox they already have a redox homeostasis in other words that the amount of oxidative stress or free radical production is balanced not it's a homeostasis not truly balanced but 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 it it has the right amount of the oxidative process and reductive process at the same time that's the homeostasis that we need for Optimal cellular health, right? And if if molecular hydrogen were to go to that cell, we see this in in cell culture studies, for example. When we administer molecular hydrogen in a cell that's that's already at uh, you know redox homeostasis, we we don't see any increase in the NRF two or other proteins or things like this. Um, There's nothing like that, and so that's very important. We might see things that the um, my, the mRNA levels, but not mm-hmm. at the protein levels. Now, that's important because we don't want to have uh, a, an issue of having a reductive stress, for example, because if mm-hmm. you were to just induce the NRF2 pathway indiscriminately and just, just keep it going, that would be called reductive stress, and that would be problematic. In fact, there are genetic mutations where the NRF2 is hyperactivated and that leads to all sorts of problems. Uh, cancer sometimes can activate the NRF2 uh, um, really strongly, and that can protect it and ensure its immortality. And that leads to a whole bunch of problems. So we, what we really are talking about is the regulation of NRF2. So like I said, when we take molecular hydrogen and we administer it to healthy cells, we don't see changes in, in, in the NRF2 level, at the protein level. We might see it in the mRNA level, for example. However, if we were to administer a toxin, um, you know, say some some pesticide or some plastic or some uh, some other stress, hydrogen peroxide or something like this, that's when we would see that molecular hydrogen was able to induce the NRF2 or or many other proteins, not just the NRF2, and and provide a protective effect, and and that is you know, so different than anything else out there. And when we look at this and it has a, a, this, a pre-treatment effect as well. So if, for example, in one study, the cell culture study, they took and um, administered uh, a molecular hydrogen of, it was just so cell culture. So it's probably only there for like an hour or so in the cell culture. And then after that, they administered a toxin. It's like a common you know, uh, environmental toxin, you know, like a plastic type thing. Mm-hmm. and Anyways, in this case, there there was the exposure caused a decrease in uh, the antioxidant status. So you can see markers of increased oxidative stress. You can see decrease in superoxide dismutase levels. You know all these important antioxidants, as well as a decrease in your NAD plus to NADH ratio, which I know you've talked about a lot before. Having a high ratio is very important, and and this stress caused this reduction. Okay, however. In the cells that were pre-treated with molecular hydrogen, it prevented those reductions from happening. And it provided a protective effect for 24 hours, even after the hydrogen gas was out of the cell culture. So there was no more molecular hydrogen left. And that's because molecular hydrogen works at this, basically the gene level, you know, epigenetically even, modulating uh, the proteins and the signaling pathways and the phosphorylation cascades so we can have a protective effect for, for 24 hours. So, so
0: that was an in vitro study you
1: described, right? Yeah, so this in cell cell. exactly. In the cell culture right. in vitro. We, we can see other things in animal studies as well, yeah. but this just helps hone in on that mechanism that we see, number one, NRF2 is very important. Number two, we're not just activating NRF2; we're regulating its its production, so it's not too high, not too low. And number three, we are able to provide a protective effect for, say, 24 hours in this case, as opposed to only when it's present. Right? That that's that's very um, amazing to think that a molecule like molecular hydrogen is able to change how the body, how the genes express themselves, so that. It, it's not going to, you know, it's, it's going to have favorable effects even after it's out of the body.
0: Yeah, it's pretty astounding, actually, which is why why I'm so fond of it. Uh, why I think we should review the administration, some of the things you alluded to, in that it, there's a paradox to the dosing effect, and that if you take too much of it, it's actually highly counterproductive. So I want you to review that the optimal dosing and the different types of dosing. And I want to know if there's any updates on comparing the tablets to the, the gas administration, which I know has done most of the research, maybe not most, but a significant amount of the research.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So when it comes to overdosing, for most people, you're not going to overdose molecular hydrogen that, that, we're, that, that you're able to um, and that we're aware of. Because when when the studies that are showing the overdosing idea, it's actually that we the hydrogen was administered to the animals for 24-7. Okay, so they were constantly, continuously. yes, continuously exposed to molecular hydrogen. And there was no spiking at all. So in this case, like the, the, uh, the cages of the animals, of the rats, they were always had molecular hydrogen, 2% hydrogen gas always there. And in, interestingly initially there was a protective benefit. You could see changes in biomarkers. You could see benefits. And then after the first, a little bit,
0: first day or so, um, I, uh,
1: I think it was a little bit longer, actually, okay. maybe like the first, you know, few days or a week or so, but then okay. it seemed to kind of decrease after that. But w- when you administer the molecular hydrogen, um, intermittently, mm-hmm. that's when it was more effective. And so that's the idea of you know having an intermittent exposure so it's probably not possible for somebody to you know take too much you know drink too much hydrogen water or you know inhale molecular hydrogen for 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 too much i mean some of the studies people are inhaling hydrogen for you know 6 to 8 or even 12 hours a day for example we see therapeutic effects in this way so a lot of a lot of molecular hydrogen but no but but not this 24/7 exposure that that seems to be what uh, the problem is. So in, in terms of the, the optimal dose, and so drinking hydrogen water, what, one thing that we have to keep in mind then is what is the dose that is required in order to induce these favorable changes, okay? Mm-hmm. If we go back to a cell culture, we need to add so much hydrogen molecules, so many hydrogen molecules into the cell culture that have to interact in the cell, in order for that to activate these pathways, and that concentration, the threshold might be around, you know, eight, just say ten micromolar. Okay, that that so, so you have to get that concentration in your cells. So if you were to drink, say, uh, um, you know, an eight ounces or or you know, two hundred fifty milliliters, yeah, hydrogen water or something. Well, that's going to have a certain depending on the concentration. That's then going to be diluted by the rest of your body, and mm-hmm. that concentration is going to go down. And hopefully, it's going to be at least you know 10 micromolar or or higher. We we see some dose dependent effects from say 10 micromolar all the way to you know 800 micromolar, which is considered saturation. So. Mm-hmm there doesn't appear to be any problem with having super high doses of, of hydrogen as long as they're intermittent in this way. Mm-hmm. But we want to make sure we get that that minimum level. So th- there are probably wrong ways to take hydrogen. And mm-hmm. it, it, one of them then would be if you have your hydrogen water and if you just take a few sips and then sit it down and then a few minutes later, a few more sips, well, you're going to take that. That hydrogen is going to be uh, re, um, the concentration will be reduced by all the you know, by, by the fluids in the body, so the concentration may never reach that, say, ten micromolar level.
0: Well, the, the the other factor too is that the only reason you're able to typically get really high concentrations in the hydrogen water is that these nano bubbles that are created by the te- tablet technology, and if you wait, for, if you keep on sipping it, those nano bubbles are going to burst, and and there's not going to be virtually any hydrogen gas molecular hydrogen in that water.
1: The, okay. Yeah. That's, that's another really good point. It's a little bit separate on this because even in this case, we're just talking about if you have a hydrogen water that's fully dissolved, that's not nano nanobubbles, if you're just sipping it, then you're, you're, you're not going to get that, that okay. concentration good of hydrogen time. because when you drink the hydrogen, um, pretty much all the hydrogen molecules are going to be um, expelled out of the body. Via exhalation, most of it mm-hmm. within sixty minutes or so. So if okay. you're if you're kind of sipping it all all day, then you're not getting a high enough spike to induce those cells those cell signaling changes. All and does it
0: does it d- d- homogeneously diffuse through the body too, or is it is it more of a gradient? Whereas if you're swallowing it orally, there's a difference between inhaling it and its ability to penetrate all the different cellular compartments.
1: Yes. Yeah, so it does, because hydrogen is the smallest molecule, it is going to be able to permeate all the cell biomembranes and, you know, everything um, very easily. However, it will follow its concentration gradient. And so mm-hmm. it's going to, you know, when you, when you drink, it'll go to the stomach and then to the intestines and then onto the liver and then to the systemic circulation. And through, you know, Brownian motion and this diffusion gradient, it'll mm-hmm. be a passive diffusion, um, simple diffusion, go into the cells where it's going to induce those effects. So, go, going back to then your what your point about um, in your case with with tablets if you're choosing to use that, absolutely the the concentration um, of the hydrogen in the tablets is not just in dissolved form but it's in this quasi suspended micro macro nano form that has a, a a lot of hydrogen density so to speak in 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 the water and it, so it's not going to be a stable so you absolutely in that case you've got to drink it. Um, very very quickly, while it's still cloudy and everything. Otherwise, like you said, you're gonna you're gonna lose a, a high percentage of that.
0: Yeah. So how does that compare? I mean, because I think the percentage is five to nine parts per million, depending on the tablets and such. Uh, com- but the therapeutic dose of regular hydrogen water is like zero point five parts per million.
1: Yeah. Okay. So first, on on a term, just on a technical term. It is much better that we use instead of ppm parts per million, we say milligram per liter. Okay, which, which in which in this case is pretty much the same. So five okay. ppm is equivalent to five milligram per liter because ppm can mean weight per weight or volume per volume or mole mm-hmm. per mole or you know all these things. So
0: well, chemists would have, have to make that distinction for sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it gets confused because often we talk about like hydrogen inhalation. People then talk about twenty thousand ppm. And then okay. it's like, really? Because like, what is that, 20,000 ppm? How does that equate to, you know, 5 ppm or something? Right, it's, right, right. It, one's percentage, the other one is, you know, weight per weight ratio. So, so milligrams per liter, um, yeah, you're right. So, so, so saturation, which we, what we call saturation is, if you were at sea level and you were to um, put a glass of water uh, in an atmosphere of 100% hydrogen gas, then that gas would dissolve into the water and it would reach an equilibrium. Mm -hmm. the concentration it would reach would be 1.6, 1.57, more specific, uh, milligram per liter. Okay, That's called saturation with with that. And so most of the um, hydrogen water that's available on the markets um, are going to be, at best, that high. But most, a lot of them, as you said, about 0.5 milligram per liter, a lot of them are only hitting that level, which, according to clinical studies, right now the the evidence would suggest that that you really need to get um, be drinking at least that concentration in order to ensure you're going to elicit the therapeutic effect that that you want in the first place so so unfortunately, some hydrogen products are not even reaching that that threshold but the like with the tablets like what you're talking about. Because you are having so much that's dissolved and a lot of that are in the suspended or or quasi you know form, then then you have a, a very high volume of molecular hydrogen, which requires you to drink it faster. But you can get these higher doses of molecular hydrogen. So w- w- one thing I should probably mention is when when it comes to looking at hydrogen products, it's important to. Um, one of the considerations is if it has been certified according to IHSA. And I know your tablets have, have gone through that process so that um, it, we know, for example, that it's really making this much molecular hydrogen. Um, the, the IHSA is the International Hydrogen Standards Association, which is a group of international researchers that have come to, you know, basically give a definition of hydrogen water, um, look at all the available literature, and to see what is the minimal dose, which we talked about, 0.5 milligram per liter um, concentration. And what is, and then also how to measure molecular hydrogen. Because a lot of times people will try to use, uh, you know, ORP meters or different things. Mm-hmm. We, we published a paper showing how, you, you know, this it's very inaccurate. And especially if the pH is anything but neutral. So like the tablets, you might measure something like point. I don't know, 0.5 milligram per liter, when really it's five milligrams per liter because of the issue in, in the pH. So we really can't use the ORP type meters or other methods. has to be gas chromatography. And IHSA, you know, uses uh, the gold standard gas chromatography and then does a series of like, you know, testing for safety and, and purity and, you know, a number of, of different things um, in order to be classified as a you know product that could be recommended and used in clinical studies.
0: Right. So, um Hmm. any indications one of my favorites is when i travel on a plane uh, because you're typically flying about thirty-five thousand feet and for those who don't know it's about seven miles up close maybe six or seven miles and uh that's pretty high it's much higher than mount everest so the protection of the atmosphere is gone and the result the there's ionizing radiation from space that come through like gamma rays so that can really do havoc on, on your cellular structure. So, so I think it's really important to do, take, take molecular hydrogen. And I think the base strategy is that, just like you said, you cannot take this thing continuously. This is not something you want to take through three, four, five times a day. You want to take it once a day, maybe twice a day, unless you're traveling. So uh, my approach that I've evolved to is to take it before I take off, because the results it takes a while, maybe an hour, and you can speak to this for that those ARE enzymes to be activated, uh, or antioxidant response elements to be in the DNA to be a, activated, and produce start producing these endogenous antioxidants. So you want to have it before the exposure, and then like I take it every, every hour when I'm in the air, just just a tablet and put it in in water. I learned this from you too. You want it ideally the best amount is 16 ounces of water. That's a big chunk. You're going to get a significant benefit. If you put eight ounces of water, but it should be not be cold because it's going to it's going to take a lot longer to dissolve that tablet. And then you got to be holding this, looking at the the, the the cup to see if the tablet is floating to the surface yet. So, it which normally takes a minute and a half at room temperature, it could take three, four, five minutes. man I all the waters if you supposed to get ice cubes, and not to use sparkling water because the the carbon dioxide in that will inhibit the or minim, lessen the the concentration of hydrogen, the gas that you can have in the water. So that, that's my take on it. And I said, um, and I just learned recently, I don't know how I missed this, but we actually sell these tablets in little Alka Seltzer foil tablet packs. This makes it, <laughs> ultra convenient to, to travel with them. You just pick it out of your pocket, rip it open. It's totally fresh. Because one of the problems with these tablets is that they're very hygroscopic, which means they, they attract water really easily. And when they are exposed to water before you use them, the, the benefit is going to be diminished. So you want to keep them as pristine as possible until you use them. So then those packets let you do that.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, just a couple of thoughts. Um, okay. The, the, First off, I think it's probably okay if somebody wanted to take molecular hydrogen three or four times a day. the 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 issue would be when you're taking them. So mm-hmm. I would say, because we just talked about the pharmacokinetics a little bit, that it takes about mm-hmm. an hour for all the hydrogen gas to leave. Mm-hmm. Then maybe it's better. This is just a maybe. We actually have no research on this. This is just
0: <laughs> you would know.
1: Yeah, this is just my my idea on this. Okay. So because we, we we believe it's important to have the spiking effect, then maybe mm-hmm. it makes sense that if you're going to have hydrogen water, you would actually not want to have it um, for say, you know, uh, you want to have like an at least an hour break, basically, yeah, yeah. that way you go back to baseline, the hydrogen levels okay. goes back to baseline, so you can spike it again. Okay, so that means unless you're, you, you know, you're, I don't know, you're, you're trying to restrict water intake or something, but you could feasibly take you know several times to- quite a number of times throughout the day you're okay. having maybe you know and maybe you should try to say three hour spaces in be in between or something okay. like that.
0: now it it means may- twice a, twice a day so that actually gets good support for the 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 protocol i advise which is every hour while you're flying that would make sense
1: yes yes you so you, yes you could do it that way um and then but but maybe you could argue well but is an hour enough for it to go, you know, to, for everything to be long. Long. Okay. right? So you could wait a little bit longer. Now I don't, it's, it's not actually so important um, that you take it right before or something because the activity, the benefits of molecular hydrogen um, occur not necessarily when, hyd- when the hydrogen molecule is in the cell at that time. Like that study I talked about earlier, you had all these uh, therapeutic cytoprotective benefits long after. The okay. hydrogen was already dissipated. So it's, it's like as long as you've been taking hydrogen, and I would say based upon the animal studies, for about three days, then that three-day pre-treatment is going to make it so that by the time you get exposed oh, to radiation, yeah. Yeah, then, then you're already going to have that level of protection. Now, okay. I don't think that if you took the hydrogen every um, hour or every, say, 30 minutes, that you're going to negate the benefits. I, I don't think that that actually would happen because you're still getting spikes, even though you're not going all the way back to baseline. So there's probably not necessarily a wrong way to do it, but there might be some ways to optimize it and make it better. And I would just say, make sure, make sure you're taking the hydrogen water, say you know a couple of days before you're gonna get on, you know, be exposed to something. And then of course be, before, and then, yeah, you can do it. You can do it um, um, after also, but but I tend to believe that a pre-treatment of molecular hydrogen is going to be more effective than a uh, post-treatment, for example.
0: Okay, so depending on your circumstances, if you're convinced of this and you're taking molecular hydrogen a day every day, fine. It's probably closer to ideal. If you're not and you're trying to conserve and just take it with. Uh, incidence of high oxidative stress Fly would be one x-ray exposure would be another especially cat scan which is like 200 times more intense than a regular chest x-ray then you want to take it for at least three days at least three days for the exposure so your cells are sort of saturated and primed they're ready it's like they have to they're warmed up and ready to make make what they need to so does that summarize uh, what you were just saying
1: yeah, yeah, pretty much. I, I, it's probably good recommendations. Of course, that th- these things might may change as we understand more the clinical evidence in the cell culture studies. I would say that we we need at least, um, you know, a half an hour or so. If, if you just look at the expression of, you know, G protein coupled receptors of, of, uh, you know, change from gene expression, and then you make the mRNA and then you go to the ribosomes, and make the proteins, you know, all this stuff takes time. And so, you know, around a half an hour, maybe how much time is needed to start exerting some effects, right? So, so a 30 minutes pre-treatment before something might be, you know, important consideration. But, but again, you don't necessarily have to have a pre-treatment, you, a simultaneous you know, treatment is still can be effective. You know, for radiation is something we, we test a lot. In fact, with my PhD, um, we, we um, used a lot of um, irradiation of the myocardium, for example, and I looked at the protective effects of hydrogen water.
0: What type of radiation did you? Use? Gamma radiation. Gamma radiation. Yeah, that's the type you get up at 35,000 feet. Yeah. Not typically at sea level, but it is yeah. a very yeah. potent ionizing stress. There's no questions. Probably one of the toughest. And I think that's the one from nuclear fallout, too, if I'm not mistaken. Isn't it?
1: Um, we, yeah, I think so, yeah. Because if you're having a particle decay and alpha, yeah, yeah. we have to look at that. But there's, there's a number of, of, of forms, and, and they all can all be toxic. In fact, non-ionizing radiation can... <laughs> uh, <you laughs> Absolutely. Just, just, so it's very, you know... It, interesting when we look at some of the nuances and then the biological systems.
0: I wrote a whole book on that. About oh, okay. It's called EMF.
1: Yes. Yeah, and uh, I, uh,
0: interesting because we think, I mean, it's speculated there's a lot of theories on it. I don't think any of it's proven yet, but the, the current, one of the current popular theories uh, advanced by Martin Blank is not Martin Blank, uh, Martin Paul, sorry. Martin Blank is another EMF researcher he pay, recently passed. Uh, but, Barton Bart Paul is that this, the, the uh, expo- ex- exposure to the non-ionates and EMFs causes ex- ex- calcium to go extracellular, intracellular, which causes a increase or an influx of, uh, the calcium influx causes an increase in superoxide and uh, the nitric nitroxide. oxide, and you form right. peroxine nit- nitrite, which is actually a a pretty pernicious molecule because it lasts about a thousand times longer than the hydroxyl free radical so i think collectively it may be more pernicious than hydroxyl certainly not as acutely damaging as as hydroxyl but but long term i think that being it can travel between cells i mean hydroxyl can only travel like a very small distance like not even the the length of a protein yeah
1: it's it's got a billionth
0: of a billionth of a second half half half-life so
1: right yeah, the peroxynitrite is absolutely one of the most pernicious molecules, in, and you're right, because it can be protonated too, to not form a nitrous, but peroxynitrous acid, and then it's going to make it uh, build a diffuse easier as well. And, and one of the decompositions of it is it uh, can create hydroxyl radicals also. So it, it really is something very toxic. And so I think that's a really good segue, though, into how molecular hydrogen might help with the peroxynitrite um, yeah, all- yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. what want you to do it because I, it's my supposition. Ideally, this is like in any biology is the best approach is prevention. So minimize your exposure. But for whatever reason, there are so many people who just for whatever reason are unable to limit their exposure. There's a lot of good reasons for it, but that's not the best. The best is to limit it. But if you can't, then you may want to consider taking molecular hydrogen on a long-term basis because it's going to help your body Increase the endogenous actin and antioxidants to to minimize the damage from peroxynitrite and other and other oxidative stressors. So tell us how the how it works for peroxynitrite.
1: Yeah. Okay. So one of the first studies, actually, the Nature Medicine publication back. Oh in yeah. Two
0: thousand seven. Two thousand seven. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, well. In addition to showing how hydrogen could act as a therapeutic, you know, antioxidant. Um, one of the things that it found in addition to its ability to uh, reduce the hydroxyl radicals was also its ability to reduce peroxynitrite. nitrite. So r- there's one way right there of how molecular hydrogen can help is we see a reduction of the nitrite uh, levels. And we also see reductions like in, in uh, animals and tissue samples of um, nitrosotyrosine tyrosine uh, levels, which is a marker of the peroxynitrite nitrite as well. Now, you, you mentioned earlier that, uh, for example, if you get uh, the calcium signals, and that can induce nitric oxide and activate, uh, um, you know, various NOX enzymes to increase superoxide production, and then you have superoxide and nitric oxide, and they react, uh, you know, instantaneously. I mean, you much know,
0: faster than superoxide dismutation. No comparison.
1: Yeah, th- or th- is th-
0: a magnitude faster?
1: They are, yeah, the only thing that limits how fast they react is the rate of diffusion, basically. <laughs> yeah. So and superoxidus mutase is is a very fast, one of the faster enzymes. So you can imagine, you know, that this, this the, essentially it means that if they come in contact with each other, they will form um, you know, peroxynitrite. Right. So what what we need to do then is you mentioned this idea of prevention. Well, if we could somehow Decrease this excessive production of superoxide or an excessive mm-hmm. production of nitric oxide, then we could essentially prevent peroxynitrite formation, and that's exactly what molecular hydrogen does. And this
0: oh.
1: is this is really fascinating because um, if you took other antioxidants um, and you put them in pres- in the presence of, say, nitric oxide or superoxide, mm-hmm. um, you you could also scavenge, you could reduce these, you could scavenge them, you could you know, donate your electron and then neutralize these basically. Um, Well, that that can be good, but can also be bad because our body uh, makes and specifically uses things like superoxide to increase mitochondrial biogenesis um, and, or, or nitric oxide, of course, mm-hmm. for vasodilation. I mean, that's one of the most important molecules that there is for our immune system for, for every, you know, all so many parts and functions of our organs and cells. So we don't want to just neutralize all of these. Well, again, hydrogen being selective, if you put molecular hydrogen in the presence of superoxide or nitric oxide, there would not be a reaction. They, 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 they don't. They, they don't have the strong enough oxidizing power to, to, you know, for hydrogen to react with these molecules, and so we don't have to worry about that happening. But then the question is, and how does hydrogen? help with the superoxide and the nitric oxide when their levels are in excess production. And that goes to this signal modulating effects. So as I mentioned, with superoxide, typically that's from this NADPH oxidase or NOx enzymes that uh, can become super hyperactivated. And molecular hydrogen has this ability to essentially downregulate this NOx enzyme, and so you end up producing less superoxide in the first place. So, if you have less superoxide, then you're going to make less peroxynitrite, and then on the other side. You know, when you have nitric oxide production, you have three main um, isozymes or enzymes. You have the neuronal nitric oxide synthase, endothelial nitric oxide synthase, mm-hmm. and the inducible nitric oxide synthase. And, uh, you know, ENOS, of course, that's in the endothelial cells. So typically that's good. You want more of that. You kind of lose that as you get older. Um, interestingly enough, side note, uh, molecular hygiene can actually improve ENOS. Uh,
0: oh, that's great.
1: So we actually can have better blood perfusion and things in this way. Mm-hmm but, but there's the INOS um, specifically from like, you know, macrophages um, can be problematic and hydrogen has this ability to down regulate um, the, this, the, the activity of INOS of making this excessive nitric oxide production. So now you're decreasing superoxide and nitric oxide levels and, and consequently you get less peroxynitrite.
0: That's great. So thank that. It was really, really helpful. Oh, Thank you for sharing that. So, and that's what we believe is one of the primary mechanisms of how non-ionizing radiation works. But then we've got ionizing radiation and you have biological free radical production. And from my understanding and as uh, one of the most pernicious sources of biological free radical production is an excess of omega-6 fat, specifically linoleic acid. Uh, and so that's the substrate for it. And, and it's interesting, I was uh, listening to a podcast where they reviewed the data on this and they found that even for ionizing radiation, that that uh, the, the animals that had much lower tissue levels of linoleic acid had far less damage than the animals that had higher levels when exposed to equal amounts of ionizing radiation. So even though they didn't study for non-ionizing radiation, it just made perfect sense that lower linoleic acid levels are going to produce less free radicals with uh, when you're exposed to these oxidative stressors so that, um, you know, I've become less, I mean, I've been in a course for the last three, four, maybe five years of lowering my linoleic acid levels. So they're finally getting down to low levels. So if you can, if you can get those seed oils out of your diet in every shape, way, shape, or form, especially in processed foods and and restaurant foods, then, you're not going to have a lot in your tissues. And, and when you're exposed to these oxidative stressors, you're not going to generate those free radicals, which ultimately cause the damage. So uh, that's another way that you can preventively, but, you know, especially when when you're using molecular hydrogen, that's like a ma- massively effective one-two punch.
1: Well, and this, this lipid peroxidation that's going to occur with the omega-6 fatty acids, mm-hmm. I mean, they... they uh, all these omega six fatty acids, I mean, they they are, um, you know, polyunsaturated fatty acids. They have double bonds, so they have areas where they can actually be uh, oxidized, oxidized yeah. and, and 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 so that that's just the fundamental property of them. And then that can induce this propagation cascade, causing more and more. And then you when you start destroying the cell membrane, or that's that uh, cascade is going to enter into the, um, you know, down my, into my,
0: my, mitochondria, yeah. the nucleus
1: exactly yeah down to the mitochondria nucleus and then you know then you start you know causing release of uh, cytochrome c for example which induces apoptosis you know cell cell suicide and so on so uh, uh, molecular hydrogen um it's also lipid soluble okay so ah! it's more <laughs> lipid soluble than it is water soluble so really
0: i did not yeah. know that i thought it was just neutral and didn't have a preference
1: yeah, it has it has this, has a tendency of have of, of wanting to be more lipid soluble. So so it's it's several times, at least three times more soluble um, in lipids, for example, than than it would be in uh, water. And so you'll actually have more molecular hydrogen in the lipid membrane. And there was a study done by uh, Dr. Ota, who who I've done an interview before. He's one of our MHI advisors. Um, but his that's study,
0: molecular that's Molecular Hydrogen Institute for which you founded.
1: Yeah, yeah, hydrogeninstitute dot com, yeah, dot uh, org now, yeah, dot org. Oh, yeah. Um, but anyway, in his study, and it's very interesting. But this was an this was a in vitro cell free study, basically taking. The the, the, these basically a a cell membrane type idea, and administering a small percent of molecular hydrogen, so it can equate to what it is physiologically. Mm -hmm. And when you when you don't have the hydrogen present, then you get this auto oxidation. Okay, that's just you know oxygen comes, it causes oxidation, you get this propagation. What ends up happening is you form these byproducts lipid peroxide you know byproducts you know like four hydroxy and mm-hmm. enol and this sequesters various um you know other complexes which prevents activation of of, of akt different protein kinases and then eventually that that uh, can cause problems okay um, because you're suppressing these activities now when you administer molecular hydrogen there was less production of these uh, lipid peroxide end products. And, and, and consequently, there was, there was less of the inhibition of these molecules. So these molecules, these, these protein kinases, for example, they in turn end up activating um, things like PGC1-alpha, mm-hmm. which is a stimulus for mitochondrial biogenesis, and then eventually fibro Fibroblast growth factor twenty-one, which is a hepatic hormone, which is important for energy expenditure and you know uh, you know c- uh, weight loss, and so things like caloric restriction and some of these benefits you know come in with molecular hydrogen, and it all came from molecular hydrogen uh, protecting uh, the cell membrane basically from this uh, auto oxidation.
0: That's tr- tremendous. I didn't realize it was so beneficial for that, but it makes perfect sense. It just never occurred to me that would be a useful another useful strategy. So as long as we're Expanding on this, that was, but th- those were two really profoundly important fundamental biological challenges because with oxidation, because you know, it's why is it so important? Because so many experts now believe that one of the ways to that aging is accelerated is through oxidative stress. So, you really need to have a good handle on this, uh, and you got to be careful, and you just can't be well, you could, but we don't recommend indiscriminately swallowing. This, these antioxidants, it's so far superior to allow your body to do it in its own wisdom and, and based on the feedback it has from the environment with oxidative stressors.
1: Well, and so, there's critical data also that taking these high doses of synthetic antioxidants, um, it, you know, they they actually increase more mortality. I mean, you, you end up dying faster, <laughs> right? But these are the early okay. studies. Yeah, like they found that smokers, for example, who ate more carrots, you know, or something, they're like, hey, they're living longer. So they were recommending, hey, smokers. Uh, You should make sure you get a lot of vitamin A and beta carotene. And they're like, hey, you know, we should do a study on this to actually make sure that these recommendations are sound. And and they were taking, you know, different studies and sometimes high doses. You call them synthetic. uh, It doesn't really matter. The point is, these are reducing agents, reducing molecules that have the ability to neutralize free radicals. And they had to stop the studies because people who were taking the antioxidants. We're dying and getting cancer faster than those on the placebo. And in fact, the recommendation is like: be careful about taking these, especially if you smoke. So yeah,
0: there you go. So it exactly <laughs> perfectly illustrates what I just said. That's great. So yeah, I, I, it occurred to me too. There's another area that I became recently aware of: of reductive stress, which is which is an interesting concept because it, most people don't know about it. But it's when you have an excess of these uh, omega six fats, the specific linoleic acid, that it it, it perturbs the electron transport chain, so you get you get backward flow, and it actually increases reductive stress, which is a challenge.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so that that's there, there's probably two different ways of looking at um, a reductive stress in this case. So yeah, if, when you're looking at the mitochondria, I mean. So, so I, so the university I teach, of course, you know, bioenergetics, um, and as exercise nutrition, for my my uh, master's class uh, students that I'm teaching them, we we, we kind of go through through some of these pathways, um, in, in detail. But, um, yeah, if if your if your mitochondria is not functioning correctly, then as you get you know back up the electron transport chain, then what happens is just those electrons, um, instead of going to oxygen as a final electron acceptor to form water, that you, you end up Donated it to oxygen prematurely or other molecules, and that causes more free radicals and other and and can be problematic in this case. And then the poor functioning mitochondria, if you're not able to regenerate um, your NAD plus levels, because that, that's so important for our overall health, then then you end up having more and more of NADH, and this leads to more and more of your NADPH, which uh, and, and, and then because you have NADP. And NADPH and NAD plus. Anyway, you can start having this type of reductive stress that can be problematic from a metabolic perspective. Um, but then there's this 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 other idea of a reductive stress um, in terms of having, you know, t- too many like like I mentioned earlier, this this uh, upregulation of the NRF two pathway, for example, right. like happens with cancer or some genetic, you know, uh, uh, issues. We're um, just taking high levels of antioxidants. That's a reductive stress, and so you're absolutely right. With aging, it's it's and diseases. It's not so much an oxidative stress. We we focus on that, but it's really a dysregulation. It's a redox dysregulation, and in fact, we've seen in some of these aging cells, you can have um, a dysregulation of redox within the exact same cell. So, for example, in the one compartment, we say that the ribosomes, which mm. is responsible for folding proteins. And so you need to have some oxidative power um, in order to fold proteins correctly. Um, and, but as cells get older, they, they may lose that ability. And if you, if you don't fold your proteins correctly, then you're, they're not gonna function correctly because you know, f- uh, the function of a protein dictates, the structure of the protein dictates its function, right? So this is one problem, and then in the same cell in the cytosol, let's say you 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 can have a uh, too much of a uh, oxidative stress going on. So you have reductive stress going on in the, in the ER, the endoplasmic reticulum, and an oxidative stress going on in the cytosol. And you know different compartments can be you know all all, all have different issues going on. And so again, just taking an antioxidant or taking just sulforaphane or just taking whatever. That that might help one compartment, but it might exacerbate the other. So what we really want is is a regulator, a redox regulator. And and that's kind of like what molecular hydrogen seems to do. Not, is it, it is what it is. That's yes, perfect that, description of it. Yeah, the adaptogenic you know, redox regulator, basically. Is, is
0: that a term you came up with, adaptogenic redox
1: regulator? I, I did, actually. I published a paper. Yeah, I called it a, a, a mitochormetic redox adaptogenic uh, regulator. <laughs> I <laughs> love really it. Nice. That's great.
0: <laughs> That's great! You coined a new term in scientific jargon. Congratulations! <laughs> so one one of the other things I admire about you is commitment and passion about exercise. That's, that passion we both share. You're a, a significantly better at implementing it than I've been. Uh, you're a, a, you won the state championship in Utah for wrestling when you were in high school, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And you know ran a sub two thirty marathon, and you know can dead, you deadlifted over five hundred pounds. So you're you're an extraordinary physical specimen. <laughs> So uh, I'm wondering if you could maybe touch on the use of molecular hydrogen for exercise, exercise performance, and some of the benefits there.
1: Yeah. So, again, we we actually published a paper on this in the Canadian Journal of Physiology and Pharmacology um, a few years ago. Um, but the, the the studies are, uh, you know, there are quite a number of them showing that we can, you know, have improvements in, say, our endurance levels or well, I kind of want to go through uh, some some of these a little bit. I was I just reminded there was just an article published as well, a systematic review meta analysis on mm-hmm. the benefits of hydrogen for mm-hmm. exercise, and it was it was um um it was yeah just recently published this year actually. So and and again. Sp- the meta-analysis are some of the strongest evidence that that science has to offer, and it shows its favorable effect if the if the
0: articles it's evaluating are valid, because they use that to totally yeah. screw, screw with this in the COVID narrative, and they pick the wrong studies to do a meta-analysis with.
1: Yeah, that that's one of the problems with meta-analysis in general is is typically it's only valid if we know the yes. authors have a level <laughs> of expertise in this area. Yeah. Um, but okay, so so some of the benefits of of with hygiene with exercise, for example. So uh, first, it seems to be if it's going to help you, it's probably going to help you as you push yourself harder. So the further mm-hmm. away you are from homeostasis, um, the the more you're likely to see an effect in terms of uh, uh, you know helping the perceived exertion or helping with your uh, blood flow, for example, or helping to reduce fatigue. And so some of the studies. Um, like one of the earliest ones found a, a a ability to prevent fatigue during a maximal iso isokinetic knee extension exercise. So in this study, basically um isokinetic just means same speed. And so you you're on a machine and you just you're just doing these leg extensions. You have to do, you know, I think they did 50 of them um in a row, and you just do as hard as you can. And then you, the, the group that took the molecular hydrogen was able to maintain a higher force output um, during the, those 50 uh, maximal isokinetic uh, knee extensions. And then also they, they looked at um, exercising at a you know, around 70% of your VO2 maxers, which is about you know, close to 70% of your max heart rate. And those who were doing this, they were able to exercise longer, like a like a longer time to exhaustion, for example. But also had lower levels of lactate. So um, lactate, um, there's a lot of misunderstanding about you know la- lactate. Uh, you know, we heard like lactic acid, you know, causes the burn or something. None of that is true. Um, yeah, l- lactic acid is a- actually lactic acid itself is not even produced in the body. Um, the only lactate, the molecule of lactate, is in fact, I have one of my exercise phys uh, um, textbooks, it still has lactic acid in there. And it says that lactic acid is made and then it disassociates into lactate and the hydrogen ion, which again, it's, it's not true. In fact-
0: Tell us, I thought it was at the pyruvate uh, metabolism.
1: Yeah, so what happens is, you, yeah, pyruvate is the end of the um, glucose and you make pyruvate. What happens is lactate dehydrogenase, the enzyme, then takes pyruvate and adds two electrons and a hydrogen ion, which is the acid, adds a hydrogen ion to the pyruvate, and that forms lactate. So, mm. the molecule lactic acid is never produced. Okay, okay, but I don't want to go too far in the weeds. That's, I'll, I'll go really off on a topic. But but I want to talk about this lactate just real quick. The reason why we produce lactate is because pyruvate normally will go to the mitochondria um, mm. to this pdh complex and that's oxidized into a pseudocohid it goes mm-hmm. anyway th- then you end up making a bunch of atp or energy in the mitochondria with using oxygen right, right. aerobic now, respiration exactly right okay so if 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 your mitochondria are unable to keep up with the demand with the atp demand of the amount of exercise so it's not able to make enough ATP using the mitochondria using this pathway because maybe you don't have enough mitochondria, maybe you're not getting enough oxygen there. Um, it's just taking too long. And yeah, so
0: or on. the exercise is too hard.
1: Uh, uh, right. <laughs> well, or the, or your exercise is too hard, but that's because your body's got to get better, right? Yeah, so yeah. So you know what happens then is you start producing lactate. So lactate is this byproduct. So. Because the production of lactate is what allows you to continue exercising. It's what allows you to continue, you know, going at that high intensity. And you you can um, make lactate instead of having a buildup of of pyruvate. It's actually a buildup of NADH, which is the issue. Okay. Now, in the study then, when they found that you have a reduction of lactate, what that means is that, well, okay, one interpretation is that the molecular hydrogen may have improved the function of the mitochondria. And we see this in other studies where we actually see increased energy production, so increased ATP production in the mitochondria. Now, if, we, if we're if getting our ATP production from the mitochondria using the aerobic respiration, then we don't have to go through the anaerobic pathway of making lactate. So that's that's kind of the important area of why we're seeing lactate uh, decrease is because we're able to use the mitochondria to make ATP, and now we're going to exercise Um, better, longer, and have less uh, fatigue, especially the the perceived exertion, uh, you know, in in our brains as well. Um, And then there's also maybe other explanations in terms of lactate clearance and accelerating the Cori cycle and different things. But the mitochondrial bioenergetics are probably a, a major target of molecular hydrogen.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you for expanding on that. So mucho benefits when you're exercising. It's a really good idea if you want to optimize and and maximize your investment in time and effort and energy. If you're going to put in the work, may as well optimize it with some molecular hydrogen.
1: And, And it's protective because as we said, when you exercise, you do breathe a lot more. And that's going to make more free radicals. And a lot of those free radicals are going to be very good for your body because it's going to force you to make more antioxidants. It's going to increase mitochondrial biogenesis and all this stuff. But you're still causing damage. You're still damaging DNA. You're still doing things. So molecular hydrogen, the idea here is that you can negate or reduce the damaging effects of exercise while... uh, while not inhibiting the benefits of exercise, and in fact, maybe even potentiating the benefits of exercise. And so this is one of the ideas that hydrogen, in some ways, can act as an exercise mimetic, not in in, in the true sense, maybe a mimetic, because it can activate some of the same pathways, some of the same metabolic pathways that exercise does, and, and in, in this case, it can maybe really potentiate those benefits of exercise. Then again, to compare that to conventional antioxidants, we, especially in, in animal studies, we see this, that e- taking a high dose of antioxidants can negate the benefits of exercise training. So normally with exercise, you have like improved insulin sensitivity, your, your glucose levels go down, you, know, um, you, you have a, a, you know, better antioxidant status. Taking high levels of synthetic antioxidants can completely negate those benefits of exercise. So again, hydrogen is superior because it doesn't do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Does it obliterate the 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 external antioxidants that you would swallow? Is it somewhat similar mechanism as uh, co- uh, cold water immersion or cold thermogenesis? Uh, it,
1: it, well, I guess the end result would be the same. But conventional antioxidants and different like mechanism, cold immersion, yeah, different mechanism, um, but. There Of course, there's going to be some interplay because free radicals are always uh, at play, mm-hmm. you know. But there's also things like the chaperone proteins, the heat shock proteins, sure. uh, and different things that are in clearing of like calcium, inorganic phosphate, and things in the. Muscle. I
0: love heat shock proteins. Most of it, my most of my heavy workouts are followed by a near infrared sauna. I get up to like 180 or so, and my body temperature is like 102. For only 20 minutes. And uh, that's one of the, I love activating heat shock proteins because as you mentioned earlier, those protein unfolding is a huge problem. If your proteins, you can have a protein, but if it's misfolded, it's not going to work.
1: Yeah. Well, and you know, molecular hydrogen also induces the heat shock protein response. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so so one of some of my colleagues in Japan, they did a, a several studies. Um, we we actually published one recently, um, but but we 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 see that yes, molecular hydrogen is able to indeed deduce mtUPR, the mitochondrial unfolded protein response, oh. um, and and then this is important because then we this could result later in rejuvenation of the mitochondria, for example. So there's, there's lots of heat shock proteins, but hydrogen is involved in this, and then it induces later an upregulation of collagen biosynthesis, as well as some of these same pathways.
0: That's terrific. That's great. So I was thinking, as we were elucidating the mechanism with the uh, omega-6 fat linoleic acid, that, which I view as probably one of the most pernicious contributors to chronic degenerative diseases. So heart disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity. So if you're mitigating, and it's not because it's a direct toxin by itself, but as you mentioned earlier, it's the byproducts, the the ALEs that's referred to advanced lip oxidation end products, uh, which is similar to ages from, from carbohydrates. Advanced glycation end products, but these ALEs or even oxylams, more specifically oxidative linoleic acid metabolites. The metabolites, and there's hundreds of them. H4HNE is just one, but there's hundreds of them uh, that contribute to they're independent free radicals that damage the cellular tissue. So if you can lower those that production of those free radicals from the to begin with, you're probably radically contributing to almost every chronic degenerative disease.
1: Yeah, that that's why. Um, we can explain that molecular hydrogen can have such a wide, diverse benefits in so many different disease models because essentially all of them have this root cause of uh, an excessive amount of oxygen distress or redox dysregulation we talked about or this inflammation. And hydrogen able to regulate these pathways is going to help at the root cause as, as opposed to you know a certain drug that's gonna uh, target a very specific receptor. Go, you know, into this specific organ. It's gonna, you know, one target, you know, one organ and one effect type idea. And that's just not how molecular hydrogen works. It's able to work on this on the oxidative pathways, on the mitochondria, on autophagy. I mean, well, we, we, <laughs> there's so many areas where molecular hydrogen works, and and so it makes sense that it should be able to help with so many different uh, conditions.
0: Yes, indeed. Well, I love it. As I said earlier, it's my favorite antioxidants because it's selective. It's not like any other antioxidant and really is really one of my absolute favorite supplements and I, I embrace widely. Um, so what, what's on the horizon for you? You got any exciting research that you're working on or or any uh, theories that you're seeking to prove?
1: Yeah. What, one of the, well, there's, there's a number of things. Okay. So maybe... Um, we'd like we'd really like to understand um, still the mechanism of hydrogen in terms of you know what what is it actually exactly binding to um, mm-hmm. what's a primary target, and then this is going to induce this and so on so that's still being um, uncovered right now you know there there's there is a a brand new article that came out um, that could be a kind of a groundbreaking article we need some more research to validate it but um hydrogen. It's kind of a complicated thing, but I'll I'll make it very simple though. But this just paper just came out, and we have the hemoglobin that can get degraded and and form different um, forms different things when it's during its degradation process. And hydrogen can interact with some of these and actually form this like um, association with some of the iron complexes in this case. And this ends up acting maybe as a catalyst for which hydrogen can neutralize free radicals and prevent um, oxidative stress, and and it can be attached to the this um, these proteins in the body that circulates all throughout the body so it can be brought to through through the brain through all the organs and everywhere else and you know could help mediate a lot of the effects that we're seeing with molecular hydrogen so that's that's a very interesting study. More data needs to be done, but it's but it's pretty neat that we're actually seeing how hydrogen is able to maybe bind to, to some of these um, novel proteins in, in the body. So, yeah. so that's, that's one one area. Um, and then another interesting thing is some people seem to be much more sensitive to the benefits of hydrogen than uh, other, and this is just kind of anecdotally, but even when we look at sub-analysis, some of the clinical studies, like we published a study on, on using we well, actually use hydrogen producing tablets um, and it was six months in metabolic syndrome and and we, we found improvements in cholesterol and glucose and you know and, and liver enzymes and you know weight loss and things but but looking at the data it almost seems that some people are going to respond better than other people do for example and so trying to hone in on what this sensitivity might be and and it's possible that uh maybe it has something to do with our gut microbiome because we naturally produce hydrogen gas in in our intestines right produce hydrogen gas naturally but but people produce different levels some people produce a lot some people don't produce any at all in fact. and then it's going to depend on our diet what type of diets we're going to have and so there might be something going on here that would make one person more sensitive to to another and hopefully we can hone in on that um mm-hmm. and then and then uh we were talking earlier about um i did update our, our website molecularhydrogeninstitute.org mm-hmm. um so you know right now we're able to offer some excellent education about molecular hydrogen what it is and what it isn't there's so much confusion out there
0: I mean, you've got some courses too that you put yes
1: there. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm hoping that if you're interested, if any, if anyone um, is interested in learning about um, molecular hydrogen and just trying to understand the principles and things behind it, so you can answer your own questions, these courses are really going to help because there's. There's a lot of information out there that's not correct, and so I'm. I'm. These courses are specifically designed to eradicate a lot of the misinformation, get the correct information, and allow you to think about you know how to use molecular hydrogen the best, how to optimize, um, and, and so on. So I th- I think people are going to really like them.
0: Perfect. So definitely head over there, molecularhydrogeninstitute.org. Two closing questions. One is. Um, The difference, the the contraindications, are there any for molecular hydrogen? I do recall in the past that there was a concern with SIBO or small intestinal bowel overgrowth. Uh, Is that an issue? Or are there any other contraindications that someone should be concerned about using molecular hydrogen?
1: Um, Yeah, so we don't know. That's just a possibility, right? Because, uh, yeah, if you have... And there's different types of SIBO, right, where you have the methanogenesis and, and more or, or, or just the hydrogen producing. And so if, if they're produ- if they're using a lot of molecular hydrogen as an as an energy source, the bacteria, to produce you know, more methane, for example, then maybe if you're feeding more of that hydrogen, then it could be problematic. That could be true for some people. But for other people, it probably wouldn't be true because they also have a lot of hydrogen-producing bacteria, so there's already a lot of substrate in the intestines them- themselves, and so adding a little bit more molecular hydrogen may not change anything at all. Um, in fact, maybe there's even a neg- negative feedback you know going on that can make it better. So if that's a, if that's a concern, I mean, you could try it, and if you feel worse or something, you know, then then, then you know maybe it's not for you right now. Um, so, so, but that's, so, so there's that aspect. And then in terms of, you know, contraindications, again, currently with what we have seen in the literature, there, there does not appear to be any contraindications. Um, the, the bigger contraindications would be if you are using your, your method of making or using a molecular hydrogen is, is not uh, a very good way, for example. So, you know, sometimes I've seen people take just, you know, pieces of metal and put it in water and, and then they'll make do electrolysis because they'll produce a little bit of hydrogen gas in there. Yeah, you do make some hydrogen, you know, water, but the, the concentration is low. And then all that electrode material can be degraded and, you know, in it, and then leached into the water, basically, and then you're drinking that. So th- that, of course, could make you not feel very good or make you sick or cause problems, you know, or... You know if, if you're if you're overdosing on you know i don't know drinking too much water right you know drinking a, a several gallons of water a day of hydrogen water or something trying to get a bunch less well, just too much water it's going to mess you up your electrolyte uh, balance so but in terms of just molecular hydrogen still there doesn't appear to be any uh, contraindications so it seems to be yeah something very safe and that's Honestly, that's why I feel comfortable talking about it, even recommending it. Uh, at least I certainly don't discourage people from using um, molecular hydrogen. Um, it's just that we the safety profile of medical hydrogen is very high. We see this from many cell culture and animal studies and human clinical studies, and it's naturally produced in our intestines and everything else. And so because the safety profile is so high and the potential benefits appear to be um, well quite remarkable... Um, then, you know the, the risk to the risk to uh, benefit ratio you know is is really quite favorable and so I think we can go ahead and enjoy the try to enjoy the benefits of molecular hygiene without uh, great forget
0: to try you can just enjoy them yes. <laughs> you can do it. it's really great. So finally uh, the uh, with respect to alternative methods of a district in um, inhalation, not inhalation ad, administration. Uh, what about, can you review hydrogen gas? Because there's some devices out there that make hydrogen gas. I've been in the process of seeking to get one made overseas and, and I, I'm seeking to get one made for you too, but about like a 7% concentration. Can you, a totally different mechanism, can you just maybe provide some insights as to the comparisons of you know, the gas machines are much, I mean, and you could actually use hydrogen gas itself, like from a uh, same company that would sell you oxygen gas. You can breathe that in, so if you can, but that would be, I think, a hundred percent. Maybe you can combine it with hydro, with oxygen.
1: Right. Yeah, that, but we do that in the laboratory, and and, yeah. in, and in fact, in a, this is the concern that, that oh, okay. In most clinical studies, that's exactly maybe not most anymore, but but in many of the clinical studies, especially the ones that are done in the hospital settings, that's mm-hmm. what it is done. is It's a tank of very pure hydrogen gas that is mixed with medical grade, you know, oxygen gas, and so it's just very high purity, right? And so the percentages are exact. And so when you inhale that, you're inhaling that specific percentage of you know two percent, four percent, or whatever it is. Now. When it comes to these machines that produce the molecular hydrogen, um, you know, that, that's all great. Assuming that the machine is not, you know, putting contaminants, you know, into the gas or something like this um, normally should not be a problem. But, but the issue is, is the volume of hydrogen gas even going to be enough? Because just because something is 2% or 1% or 7% or something, well, you you know, 7% of, of, of 10 is 7, you know, 7% of 10 milliliters per minute is 7 milliliters per minute. And 7 milliliters per minute is not going to be therapeutic for you. So you have to ha- make sure the volume is much higher, you know, closer to 200 to 300 milliliters per minute, kind of at a minimum uh, based based upon the studies. So there's a number of things to look at in this. But then in terms of the, uh, the benefits, you know, say compared to hydrogen water, more research needs to be done on that. And in some cases, it appears that the drinking hydrogen water can be more effective. Um, and, and in fact, in certain cases, it's like 100 times more effective just you know, if looking at their different uh, protein expressions, for example, but, but in other scenarios, the inhalation might be able to work on different pathways, uh, different areas that the drinking cannot. And so they, they don't really compete with each other, and there could be an additive or synergistic benefit from them. Um, you, in the past, I would say most of the research is done on drinking hydrogen water and, that's, and in clinical studies. And that's, that's, that's still probably the case, but there is, are more and more um, clinical studies being done now with the inhalation of molecular hydrogen that that are showing favorable effects.
0: Okay, that's great. Uh, All right, well, thank you for that. Um, I think we're going, because I had these technical difficulties with my video camera and it switched to to backup, uh, I think we're gonna probably end it there. Uh, But I really appreciate uh, everything you're doing and all the information you shared with us and thanks for everything that uh, you put together so far.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. I'll, I'll, always, always great to talk about hydrogen. And thank you for uh, your time. And uh, I appreciate it.